A large part of inflation, which remains a hot topic for central banks today, was driven during and post-COVID pandemic by a sharp rally in commodities like oil, natural gas, and industrial metals. In 2023, things appear to have cooled down. What common threads weave together the fate of energy and industrial metals and what forces might drive them apart in the future? We talk all about this with Francisco Blanche, Managing Director, Head of Global Commodities and Derivatives Research at Bank of America Securities. Welcome to another episode of the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you are an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this podcast is for you. I'm Ubin Tahir, Director, Macroeconomics Research and Tactical Solutions at Wisdom Tree. And I'm Nitesh Shah, Head of Commodities and Macroeconomic Research here at Wisdom Tree. Before we begin, I do need to state the following to clarify. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and in this episode, Bank of America, and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. So with that, Nitesh, let's kick things off and I'll pass it over to you for a quick market recap. Thank you very much, Mabin. So we're recording this on the 26th of June, uh, which is the weekend after a failed mutiny attempt in Russia. Uh, this failed mutiny attempt um, has reawakened uh, commodity markets back to um, redrawing attention to some of the risks in Russia. Although the mutual attempt basically failed um, and we don't think anything would necessarily change in terms of the Russian uh, war tactic, um, we do think that uh, some of the underpricing of uh, risk has been, uh, will be addressed. We're already seeing oil prices bounce up a little this morning after a week of uh, uh, losses. And we're also seeing gold prices rise this morning as well um, as, as uh, people look for more defensive plays. So the broad commodity markets may get a little bit more of a bid as uh, people try to hedge out some of these risks. Elsewhere, uh, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been seeing a bit more um, uh, stimulus uh, energy coming out from uh, China uh, with a few rate cuts, but nothing really meaningful. No big bazooka has been offered so far. However, the Chinese Securities Journal uh, has reported that some more fiscal uh, uh, stimulus will be offered. Um, and last week, we did see uh, China re-engage in uh, providing some stimulus to the electric vehicle markets after the uh, subsidies had come to an end at the end of last year. Uh, elsewhere uh, in the commodity markets, we are seeing some uh, commodities, agricultural commodities, uh, seeing a higher bid as a result of weather stress. In the US, uh, crop conditions uh, labeled as moderate to intense uh, drought conditions have actually increased to 64% from just 19% a week ago. So that uh, gives an indication uh, to the extent to which um, uh, the El Nino weather effects are 
actually impacting uh, weather conditions and helping uh, the, the, the yields of crops actually decline, uh, which may be positive for uh, the agricultural commodity space. But we want to keep that uh, market wrap-up fairly uh, short today because we have a guest with us today, uh, Francisco Blanche from Bank of America. Welcome, uh, Francisco. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Nitesh and uh, Mabin. It's, uh, it's great to be here with Wisdom Tree to discuss uh, commodity markets. Uh, very excited to, uh, to join you. Thank you so much. Um, so let's start off talking a little bit about um, the energy markets. Um, you know, positioning in oil futures has been super bearish recently. Um, firstly, do you share that sentiment? And secondly, um, has anything that's happened over this weekend with uh, Russia really changed the situation? Uh, hey, Nitesh. Uh, so uh, I think, look, Going back uh, probably the last six, nine months, we've seen a tremendous pressure uh, to a downside in commodity markets, uh, really coming from uh, the tightening of monetary policy in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, because remember, prior to uh, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, interest rates were zero in, uh, in Europe and, and the U.S. And it's only been a recent, in the recent window, recent uh, uh, 15 months or so, We've seen a very rapid increase in in, uh, in policy rates, so that's I think created a tremendous negative headwind for commodities, and uh, and we've seen that across the board, whether it's energy, metals, or agricultural commodities, they're all down uh, year on year, with a few exceptions, including perhaps gold and, and sugar and beef. But it, it's been a, a bit of a, a mini bear market for the commodity complex, um, and and I think the uh, the situation in Russia certainly. Uh, is something that that we uh, ought to be very worried about, uh, but um, but so far it hasn't really amounted to any disruptions. Now remember, Russia is the world's largest exporter of uh, commodities. Uh, it was even larger before all the gas exports to Europe collapsed uh, at uh, at the end of uh, at the end, uh, in the middle of last year. Um, but really. Uh, Russia obviously remains very important to many markets uh, around the world, whether it's uh, potentially disruptions to grains or uh, potentially further disruptions to gas. We've seen gas this morning bouncing up in Europe quite aggressively um, as concerns have mounted that some of the Russian volumes could be could be lost additionally. I remember we still have some gas from Russia flowing through Ukraine, and then we have a lot of LNG exports going into into Europe actually from Russia still. So, um, so I think those are, are important concerns, um, but but for the time being. Um, it's hard to tell which which way this is going to go and whether it's going to have a meaningful impact on, on the war, whether it's going to extend it or it's actually going to shorten it. So um, I think we have to kind of keep a close eye and, on, on developments there and, and see how things play out. But uh, I, I don't see a, a very clear implication, uh, perhaps other than reassessing the, the view that, that geopolitics uh, remains a key, key driver of commodities and a key risk to global markets. And Obviously, gold's bounced strongly this morning as well in the bag of it, uh, Nitesh. Thank you so much, uh, Francisco. So, um, I mean, ignoring what's happened over the, the past weekend, um, you know, how binding have the uh, Russian sanctions been? You know, are they effective in what they do? And, uh, you know, um, you know, is, are the sanctions being experienced very differently for crude and product markets. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts there. 
So, uh, look, uh, one of the uh, interesting uh, parts of this uh, Russia sanctions is that they've been very effective at pursuing the dual objective set out by the U.S. Treasury at the very beginning of, uh, of the process. I remember uh, these sanctions uh, were supposed to uh, bring inflation down by preventing uh, a major loss of Russian energy export volumes and, and therefore avoiding a repeat of what we saw in European natural gas markets. But at the same time, pressuring uh, revenues for the Russian government so they would have less money available uh, in war effort. Um, and, and I think we've seen both. We've seen inflation coming down and we've seen the Russian uh, financial position getting more and more strained. Uh, I think this event sort of weakened uh, partially reflect that strain between uh, the paramilitaries in Wagner and the official uh, Russian military forces. Um, and I, I just think that they have less less money uh, and, of course, less resources. And we are seeing it uh, across many different channels because it's not just being financial sanctions, but also sanctions on a lot of uh, equipment that exports into Russia. So, um, so all of that, I think, is clearly uh, putting a lot of strain on on. Uh, on, on uh, their uh, military uh, operations. So so sanctions have been very effective. I, I, and they've been effective on two fronts. They've uh, curtailed, uh, like I said, they've curtailed revenue. They've, they've kept volumes flowing. Um, and those volumes, uh, interestingly enough, have also uh, been sustained at a petroleum product level, which has enabled the price of diesel, which hit a record level of $215 a barrel last year, to come down as well. Remember, Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of petroleum products right after the U.S. So uh, enabling the exports of diesel was also very important uh, in order to prevent price spikes. And, uh, and, and the measures were successful there, too. Uh, we've seen a price cap of $100 a barrel uh, on diesel and a price cap of $60 a barrel on crude oil. And again, uh, that's enabled a lot of Russian volumes to hit the market and, uh, and kept uh, the European uh, the European economy well supplied, even though Europe is no longer importing Russian diesel. It's importing diesel from other parts of the world, like Turkey or the Middle East. So Russian diesel is making its way to other markets. So, so that's been uh, that's been very effective. I, I, I'd say at, at doing both, pursuing both objectives. Nikesh. That's great. And so, with OPEC uh, cutting back on production, um, the sanctions on, on on Russia, you know, holding some barrels back. Um, and, and, you know, oil curves, uh, both Brent and WTI, uh, largely in, in back relation. You would expect this to be an environment where you would see uh, oil rigs in the U.S. expand. Um, historically, with slightly higher prices for, for oil, um, we've seen much more expansion in, in oil rigs in, in the U.S. Why are we seeing this that this time around? Uh, why are oil rigs largely stalled in the U.S.? Um well, I mean, I think there's there's a number of issues with uh, with U.S. shale. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we've seen a big shift in uh, in spending patterns, in investment patterns. Companies are trying to be as uh, ruthlessly financially efficient as possible, um, and shareholders have been asking these companies to uh, return money back to shareholders after really not doing very well. Uh, financially for many, many years. So now shareholders are finally getting their money back and they're very happy about it. So companies have a lot of pressure to maintain that pace of dividends, of share buybacks. So that's one element of it. Uh, the other big element that's often 
not uh, widely discussed is that the shale resource is getting tighter too. If you look at the different basins across America, you look at the Backend, the Eagle Ford, uh, Nirara, they're essentially flat. They've been flat for a while. The only place that we've seen growth has been in the Permian Basin. And even the Permian Basin is maybe 12, 18, 24 months away from hitting a peak. Uh, so U.S. shale production is going to end up peaking a little above the current levels um, over the course of the next uh, 12 to 24 months. And, uh, and I think companies realize that, uh, that the resource is, is not as ample as uh, perhaps thought. And, and uh, maybe 15 years ago, we had 25 years of reserve life. Now we have, of course, after 15 years, just 10 years of reserve life. So many companies have five, six, seven, eight years of reserve life. They have no incentive to accelerate their growing because their uh, company value would drop if, if they essentially became uh, two, three-year entities, right? So there's a lot of activity on for corporate control, a lot of mergers, acquisitions, divestments. Uh, but in terms of incremental production, um, we're just not there. Uh, the resource is not there at the at the price that would make uh, price that would make sense, like sixty dollars uh, a barrel. If you if you keep going higher, of course, there's going to be other um, sources of potential oil uh, additions that could come on, on into play. But no, not at these levels, and that's why you're seeing what you're seeing. You're seeing more financial. Uh, more financial restraint and uh, more focus on on improving uh, uh, improving uh, financial operations at all these drill, shale drillers, but also looking at the resource itself and realizing that you know maybe you just want to consolidate and, and extend the life of the of the entity as opposed to accelerate growth. Francisco, the International Energy Agency recently published its June oil market report, and they took a fairly constructive view on China's uh, rebound and uh, demand uh, for oil, particularly. Uh, Now, many people have expressed uh, disappointment over China's recovery. Some urge patience to let the recovery story unfold. How do you see China's recovery and its impact on energy prices? Um, look, um, I mean, China um, has been recovering quite nicely from a from a service standpoint. Uh, we've seen the, the the services economy picking up. Uh, mobility across the country has uh, certainly seen a, a big uplift, and even international mobility in and of China has seen a, a strong pickup. But the weakness in China is really arising from two main sectors: one is industry, and one is um, the real estate sector. Now. When it comes to, to industry, remember China is the factory uh, factory of the world. So uh, weakness in um, in in uh, demand for goods uh, relative to demand for services around the planet has been uh, impacting China negatively. Of course, there's also the reshoring, French shoring, near shoring uh, story playing out. Um, so that that I think has been a drag on oil demand from the industrial sector in China. And then the second sector where we've seen a lot of weakness is real estate, where uh, there's an element of demographics. Uh, obviously, China's population's uh, peaking and, and likely heading a little lower from here. Um, plus, of course, the uh, Communist Party has been very focused in China on trying to slow down, um, slow down uh, speculation in real estate. So they are not, I think, ready to reignite it uh, aggressively again, right? So um, I think it's this combination of, of, of weak growth on those two sectors 
that has been perhaps holding back a little bit of Chinese demand. Uh, we've seen it more materially in, in industrial metals than we have in in, in oil. Uh, but uh, but I think the weakness in, in energy will will start to to resolve as uh, those two sectors improve with with potential stimulus measures that are being considered and could be put on the pipeline. And Francisco, just thinking long term about uh, oil prices, some argue that because we're transitioning away from fossil fuel and there's this energy transition happening, uh, there's a lack of investment uh, maybe in 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 the oil sector, uh, and and the dynamics between how quickly demand falls versus the dynamic between how quickly supply might fall in the long term. How might that impact uh, oil prices in the long term as you, as you think about, you know, the next decade or so? Do you take uh, a, a long term view on oil prices as well? Uh, we, we don't have a, a very long term view besides uh, kind of the next uh, four or five years. That's kind of our medium term outlook for oil. And we think oil is a 60 to 80 dollar commodity in that in that range. Uh, that's roughly where forward prices are. Forward prices have been hovering around 65, 70, 75 dollars a barrel for a pretty long time, and and we take that we take the view that they will anchor at those uh, those levels. Um, now, having said all that, um, the uncertainty on oil supply pretty dramatic. We've seen a drop in investment. Um, we recently had a, a, our uh, commodity conference where we had some speakers talk about drop in investment and how that is likely to impact uh, the ability of the market to source oil. So, so I think a very important question, as you as you said, is when does oil demand peak? Because we're clearly not going to have supply uh, to 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 meet uh, incremental demand for oil. And there, we take the view that oil demand will likely peak at around 2027, 2028. So we are not that far away, four or five years, well, from peak oil demand. Uh, and then we'll start a relatively slow um, decline. But remember, even under uh, most scenarios, we still need a lot of oil by 2050. Now, um, some people ask me often, okay, so Francisco, you know, as you think about the next 20, 30 years, um, and we're going to a net zero, we don't need any oil. Well, that's not exactly true. In fact, if you look at net zero, even the net zero scenario that the International Energy Agency has put out has a twenty percent, um, a twenty percent allocation to hydrocarbons, uh, oil and gas hydrocarbons, from around sixty percent. Uh, but if you look at the other scenarios, uh, the aggressive scenario, or or you know the the, the, the more mild the institutional scenario, these are scenarios where we could see, uh, you know, still. 60% of the world's energy demand coming from oil and gas. So, so yes, if we get to net zero by 2050, we may not need that much oil, but under most other scenarios, oil demand is likely to be 90 to 100 million barrels a day, which is a little below where we are today, but not much. That's great. I mean, talking about energy transition, um, what role do carbon markets play in, in, uh, in energy transition? Um, so carbon markets play a very, very important role, right? I mean, I think carbon is probably going to end up being uh, one of the most, if not the most important commodity uh, in, in, in the planet. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because if, if we are uh, committed and serious about the energy transition, and I think we, we really are at this point, right? Um, I think the, um, the need to tax pollution right, uh, is, is uh, an imperative to achieve 
our decarbonization targets and therefore uh, limit uh, the rise in global temperatures beyond the level where it will make the planet uh, very hard to, to inhabit. So I think we are at this stage looking at um, we are looking at, at uh, carbon as a tool that will help us prevent the rising global temperatures and essentially put a price on something that that hasn't had a price for 150 years, which is uh, the emission of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, so now there's a price for that. And I think I think it's a price that's going to keep rising over time. Because whether we get to net zero or we end up with an, an aggressive decarbonization scenario or something milder, we're still going to have a put a we're going to have to put a price on carbon. We're going to have to make progress. And I think this is just fair, right? I mean, if, if you pollute something, you have to pay for it, right? And in the case of Earth, uh, well, it's even more important. So I think over time, this, the price of carbon will keep rising, be a critical tool. And I think we'll see more countries uh, developing carbon scheme schemes over time, not less. So it, it's not only uh, an, an important commodity in terms of, of preventing uh, climate change or, or slowing it down, but also it's an important commodity that it's going to affect portfolios in, in every possible regard. It's going to impact not just commodity portfolios, but also equity portfolios and fixed income portfolios. Uh, because companies will have to factor this into their balance sheet, will have to factor this into their uh, profit and loss accounts. So this is the one commodity uh, that you can really not miss out on. Whether you're an airline, you're a chemical, you're an energy oil company, you're a refiner, you're um, you're in, in the metal smelting business, you're an industrial manufacturer. Uh, very few companies have little carbon footprint. Uh, even large tech companies have a large carbon footprint uh, by virtue of, of increasing their uh, data processing facilities, which are, uh, by the way, huge, huge uh, uh, users of energy. Uh, and 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 I think I think so. I think carbon over time will will play a very important role that will impact all uh, financial sectors of the economy, uh, much more so than. Uh, any other commodity that that we deal into. Speaking wow. of decarbonization, uh, Francisco, one sector that's of course very relevant uh, to that discussion is industrial metals, and in in 2022, particularly in the first half, when when we used to talk to investors about the energy transition and its impact on industrial metals, many people asked if that story was already priced in because at that time metals were seeing a, a bull market, but now we're seeing weakness, uh, and maybe that's a case of industrial metals being more cyclical rather than more structural in terms of what they're pricing in today. Uh, how do you see that? Do you think industrial metals are still being uh, responsive to what central banks are doing, expectations of recession and so forth? And is there a, a point when that energy transition story will start being priced in uh, a lot more into the industrial metal sector? Uh, or are cyclical headwinds continue? Uh, will will they continue to uh, dominate the story and and the fortunes? Um, well, I think in the short run we are we are likely to see uh, some downside pressure across the commodity complex until interest rates uh, stop going up. Right? I mean, the increasing cost of money is is uh, is a uh, however a dual edged sword. On the one hand, um, it, it's trying to slow down demand. But also uh, remember, it can slow down supply by reducing investment because 
simply you you increase the hurdle on on putting more money into your next factory into your next mine into your next smelter um so i think once the 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 monetary uh tightening cycle ends uh, a lot of the commodities are going to experience a big resurgence in price and i think metals will be uh definitely at, at the very uh leading edge of this now uh of course with a slower china uh maybe China's going to need less metal, right? Uh, and, and that's probably going to provide some relief. But in our estimates, there's so many uh, uses of, of metal in the energy transition from uh, investing in the grid that we need to essentially um, uh, decarbonize the, the planet. Remember, uh, decarbonization is going from uh, oil and coal to natural gas to renewals. And renewals are mostly metals, right? And And... We need to invest a huge amount of money to get all the copper tons that we need. We need aluminum to uh, do things like, for example, lightweighting vehicles. Um, we also need silver for solar panels. We need uh, platinum for the hydrogen economy. Uh, we need lithium for batteries and cobalt and nickel. So there's a very, very large uh, array of metals that are heavily, heavily uh, used in, in decarbonization technologies. Um, which over time, I think, will create a big run-up in prices. Now, uh, this is obviously not going to happen until interest rates uh, stop hiking, because until interest rates stop hiking, uh, the metals and, and, and the commodities more broadly uh, will, will face those, those, headline, those, those headwinds from, from demand. But, uh, but I, I do think ultimately, uh, the and, and I think a lot of investors will agree with me, that if you look at the next 10 and 20 years, uh, the metal space offers uh, probably among the most interesting opportunities in the commodity complex, given uh, the, the the fact that it takes a very long time, seven to 10 years to develop a mine, and that we've been under investing now for for more than a decade in the metal sector. So um, so it's probably, like I said, one of the more interesting spaces and, and all the investment that we need to do on to decarbonize uh, will we'll have to uh, translate into much greater demand, which obviously in the case of, of, of metals, will most likely translate into higher prices. So Francisco, we've got one more question for you, and uh, I do apologize, it's probably one of the most difficult ones, but uh, where do you see uh, the big tail risks in, in the commodity markets? I mean, nobody has perfect visibility, we've all, we've all tried to analyze the market, but there are always tail risks, positive and negative. Uh, where, where do you see them? Um, Sure, Nitesh. I mean, I think on the downside, the, the most clear uh, downside risk probably is around the, the economy uh, taking commodities lower. And, and that could easily happen if interest rates end up at a point where um, we end up creating a, a major economic downturn. Now, it's difficult to say whether we will or not. Uh, and certainly the markets are not pricing that in at the moment. Uh, but of course, we've gone from, as I said before, zero interest rates uh, 15 months ago to a level of uh, policy rates that are it's already quite quite biting, um, and the Fed still has to hike maybe two more times um, over the next few months. Same for the European Central Bank. Uh, we are seeing similar pressures in the UK with rates uh, going above and beyond what anyone expected. Um, so that could that could lead to I think a very negative economic uh, outcome, which would take commodities lower. So that's one major tail risk for the commodity complex. Now to the upside, um, I think I think two things are worth mentioning. One is uh, China stimulus. We are seeing the Chinese government realizing they have to put more stimulus at work. Now, they're, of course, nervous about ending up with double-digit inflation, like we ended up here in, in, in Europe, US, UK. Um, 
but at the, at the same time, they have youth unemployment around 20%. So they got to do something to get people back to work. So it, it's kind of that balance. And, and I think if, if they overdo the stimulus program, we could end in China, we could end up with a very meaningful bounce in commodity prices, as we've always done every time China stimulated um, a little too aggressively. Now, the second upside risk I can, I can see for the commodity complex uh, could come from geopolitics. Uh, this weekend gave us a taste of what could be like to uh, have turmoil in the world's largest commodity exporter, which also, unfortunately, happens to be the world's uh, largest holder of nuclear warheads. Uh, so a bit of a concerning uh, situation. In, in, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why gold's going up, right? Because uh, geopolitics are, are red hot. Um, and that, in my mind, can also create upside risks. I mean, we talked about the grain deal uh, that needs to be renewed. Um, there is also, uh, like I said, a fair amount of, of commodities uh, still leaving Russia that could be curtailed. Um, so, uh, Nitesh, I think geopolitics, I would probably put it as number two as one of the key risks to the upside in the commodity complex here. And um, and, 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 and those would be my, my main upside and downside risks as we think about the complex over the course of the next six months. Wow, Francisco, thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience. We really appreciate uh, you coming and uh, joining us here. Um, so uh, that's at the end of our uh, Commodity Exchange uh, podcast. I don't know, Mabin, if you have any uh, outgoing comments. <laughs> Before we close, Francisco, for our audience, if they want to hear more uh, from you, uh, uh, where can they find you? Well, they can find me uh, on, I, I do regular Bloomberg TV. I do uh, CNBC, so you can you can look me up there. Uh, and then of course, if you're if you're a client of the Bank of America, you can get access to our research uh, directly. And, uh, and then of course, I, I try to do some media, uh, written media as well occasionally. So that's, uh, that's where to find, that's where, and of course, uh, you can also find me at Wisdom Tree again, whenever you need me, so. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Commodity Exchange. And if you want to hear more from us, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using. And don't forget to leave us a rating. You can follow Nitesh and myself on Twitter at NiteshShahWT and at MubeenTaherWT. And if you want to learn more about commodities, visit Wisdom Tree's website, where we have a wide range of research materials and insights. Until next time.